church, if you could please open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we're going to continue our study of this book in chapter 10, verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. As you're turning there, there's this phrase that maybe you've heard before. There is nothing new under the sun. For those that have read through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, there's a book, Ecclesiastes, and this is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. It's actually the end of the verse. The whole verse kind of reiterates the same idea, that really there's ultimately nothing new. We have similar phrases. You might have heard people say things like, nothing ever changes, or history has a tendency to repeat itself. I would argue it's not a tendency, it's just a reality. It does. It repeats itself. We may have new technology, we may have new cities, we may have new kings and conquerors, new nations that rise to the top, but at the end of the day, the basic matters of life never change. And we're going to see that today regarding idolatry. Here's our main idea this morning. Idolatry steals our attention and affections away from Christ. Idolatry steals our attention and our affections away from Christ. This morning, the sermon is going to be a little bit different. We're not going to have the typical points that we have throughout the sermon. We're going to leave this up for you to dwell on as I read, and, and you'll see at the end kind of what hopefully the Lord is going to do through the text this morning. He's already been working on me through it. Just as a brief reminder, we're still on the sixth topic out of about ten Christian rights and freedoms. It started in verse 8 here, and it goes through the end of chapter 10 up to chapter 11. So we're nearing the end of our journey, and specifically Paul is arguing for the giving up and sacrificing of our Christian rights and freedoms. It's for the good of others, but it's also a tool for gospel ministry. Today, as we continue, we'll see what is revealed when we don't or can't sacrifice those rights or freedoms. With that being said, I'm going to ask everyone to stand for the reading of God's Word, just as a reminder that we are not about to submit ourselves to some fanciful opinion. We are about to submit ourselves to the eternal Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 I'll start reading in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your holy word. Holy Spirit, we thank you for inspiring these words that we might be made wise for salvation, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work being made complete. Lord God, would you please continue to bring us into the image of Christ. Continue to bring us into completion. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. I'm going to ask your mercy this morning uh, if I have to cough once or twice. I'm going to try to get through, but just know uh, it might come. As a brief reminder, this section covers 8 through 10, and we started this whole section reciting 1 Corinthians 10, 31 together. So I'm going to go ahead and ask you, brother, to put it up on the screen. If you need to read it off the screen, that's okay. If you think you have it memorized and can go without, I'm going to challenge you to not look at the screen. We'll recite it together. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This verse summarizes and supports everything in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Now, our passage this morning follows Paul's comments at the end of chapter 9. He says in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. The call to deny ourselves in order to live more intentionally for God is not flippant. It requires intentionality. In the same way that I wouldn't go to the Olympics and try to compete in a race without diligent training. It's a serious decision. When we begin to relax in our walk and have a flippant attitude, we will run into trouble. And as an example of this, Paul references back to the Old Testament in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and he recalls the exodus from Egypt. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, he's talking about the ancestors of Israel here, were all under the cloud. This is a reference to the pillar of cloud that traveled by day, and then it was a pillar of fire by night. And it was God leading Israel through the wilderness to the promised land. It says, all passed through the sea. This is a reference to the parting of the waters, and they traveled through. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So by association with these things, Israel, God's people, was made known. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. The quail would fly down and they would harvest. The manna would appear on the ground in the morning and they would collect and eat. 
If they got too much, it would spoil and go rotten. And they said, well, what is this? And they didn't know what to call it, so they called it, what is this? It was a miracle. They got thirsty, and Moses strikes this rock, and water comes out. What were they drinking from? For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So all the time, their provision, it wasn't Moses' might in striking the rock, and that's why he was punished for that. The whole point of this was to show, Israel, you can't sustain yourself, but I, the Lord your God, will sustain you. We are to see in the rock and in all these provisions, we are to see Christ. Before we follow Paul's argument here, I want you to notice his use of language. He's intentionally mixing these Old Testament accounts with New Testament language. Look at the text here in verse 2. All were baptized into Moses. It says that they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. The spiritual rock that followed them was Christ. The reason that Paul's doing this is because he wants the Corinthians to view the Old Testament as relevant to today's issues. He wants them to see something a little bit deeper than just a historical account. The Old Testament is not irrelevant as some proclaim today. Paul affirms this truth in verse 11. It says in verse 11, These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So in the Old Testament, God is accomplishing two tasks at the same time. He's teaching Israel and disciplining them, but then he is ensuring that it's recorded so that in the future we might have that example to look back to and to learn not to desire the things that Israel desired. The whole Bible is useful for instruction. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. One of the ways that the authority of scripture is being attacked today is under the disguise of relevance. Someone might say, well, the whole Bible is God's word. Yeah, but there are parts that are more relevant. Make no mistake, this is a slippery slope, and it's happened before. We attack the authority of the Bible by saying, well, okay, this part's inspired, but we don't really need it. And over time, it goes from we don't really need it to, well, if we don't need it, is it really God's word? We cannot affirm this. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So Paul uses the Old Testament wilderness wandering to teach New Testament Christians about Christ. Well, what's his point? You'll notice he uses this repeated word, all. In verse 1, our fathers were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea. Verse 2, all were baptized. Verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. Verse 4, all drank the same spiritual drink. But then we get to verse 5. We see all, 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 all. Verse 5, nevertheless, 
with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So Paul is emphasizing the entire community of Israel. More specifically, he's emphasizing the blessing of belonging to that community. If you were in that community, you were with them, and you experienced all the blessings. You experienced the manna. You experienced the quail. You experienced the going through the waters. You experienced seeing this pillar, uh, this cloud pillar, and then by night, this flaming pillar leading. Whether or not they really desired the Lord, they experienced the blessings from that. God fed the very people that would commit idolatry days, weeks, months, or years later. They all experienced those blessings. Think about this list again. All were under the cloud. They were all personally escorted by God. All passed through the sea. They were all protected and delivered by God. All ate the spiritual food and drink. They were all provided for by God. It is a blessing to belong in the kingdom of God. Those who belong to God are guided by God, protected by God, provided for by God. But not only that, and this is the scary part, there are many who are blessed by association. You may have heard of guilty by association. It's very similar. There are many who are blessed by association. They're blessed not because they belong to God, but because they are with and among those who belong to God. So they get to share in part in the blessings of God. We see this in verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. So all experience the blessings with most, God was not pleased, and they were overthrown. Paul is using the Israelites in the wilderness as an example of what it looks like to run the race yet be disqualified in verse 27 of chapter 9. He's trying to implore the Corinthians to discipline themselves as he does by the giving up of some of their rights and freedoms. He says that he does it intentionally. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This account of Israel's history is his application and an example of that truth. So while it's a blessing to belong to God, not all who are blessed by God belong to God. God causes it to rain, and he causes the sun to shine, on both the just and the unjust. This is the opposite of the prosperity gospel, which says this, God desires you to be healthy and well taken care of. If you lack either of these, it's because you're either not claiming it or you don't believe it. If you get sick over and over again, if you find you're struggling financially, it's because you're not praying hard enough. If you send in a donation with a blanket, I will personally pray over this blanket and send it back to you, and then God will really bless you. Many people are fooled by this. Many people. But it is not true. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. 
And it teaches if you are blessed, you belong. If you're not blessed, you don't belong. But it's a lie. If this is the truth, then Jesus' closest disciples all failed to model proper faith and obedience for us because they were all poor and they all suffered. They all died. The true blessing of the Christian is not in money or health or material things. The true blessing of the Christian is in belonging to Christ. Where's our blessing at? I'm blessed because I belong to Jesus. So now I can actually lose money. I can lose health and still be satisfied because I belong to Christ. That's my blessing. In that sense, God's people are never really without blessing, even if you have nothing. We just may not have the type of blessing that the world is drawn to. Now, the inverse of this is what Paul is getting at here. Blessing doesn't necessarily indicate belonging. There were a number of people who experienced the physical blessings in the wilderness. This physical experience, Paul argues, points to a spiritual reality. This is why he keeps repeating this word, spiritual. The same spiritual food, the same spiritual drink, the spiritual rock that followed there's a deeper meaning that God wants us New Testament Christians to see. All experience blessings, but not all belonged. Most of them didn't. And in the same way, what Paul is saying is, it's not enough to say, I belong. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Christian. That's not enough. It is possible to say those words and to be numbered among God's people, but you are not truly a Christian. If you are a registered runner in the race, Paul says, run the race. Don't just say, I'm a runner. I got the paper to prove it. Run. So after this, in verse 6, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Here's the application Paul pulls from the Old Testament account of the wilderness. Don't desire evil. That's the reason we have these Old Testament accounts. We're able to learn by their mistakes. He says, run the race. Don't be like the Israelites did in the wilderness. Don't do what they did. Here's what they did wrong. They desired evil. The reason that we have these Old Testament accounts is so that we can learn by their mistakes. We can look at what they did in the wilderness and say, well, that's not right. We shouldn't do that. But you know what's funny is we don't do that. I don't do that. I read the Old Testament like, man, these people, they are, they are very unintelligent, and that's putting it lightly. I can't believe they didn't see that. But then you know what? I do the exact same thing. It's just a different flavor. There's nothing new under the sun. Their problem is the root problem behind every sin. It's the word desire. Look at it in verse 
6. They took place as examples that we might not desire evil as they did. They enjoyed the blessings of God, but they had evil desires. And then in verse 7, he labels it. He puts a label on that. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And then he gives this list of we must nots in the following verses. Now, when you hear Exodus, wilderness, idolatry, one of the first images that should come to mind is the famous idolatrous golden calf. We've all heard this story growing up in children's church. We've read it in the Bible as we've grown up. We see a general reference to this in verse 7. It says, don't be idolaters. And then it quotes, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. But in the following verses, you know what we don't see? We don't see a reference to the calf. We don't see a reference to any foreign gods. Paul's application doesn't reference either an idol or any little g god. Listen as I read, starting in verse 7. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. The topic is idolatry, but the focus here isn't on carved idols. It's on certain evil desires. If you look in verses 7 and 8, we have these evil sexual desires. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. In verses 9 and 10 here, we have grumbling and complaining. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Sexual sin and idolatry, that's an easy connection. A lot of the foreign nations at that time, they worshiped their God through sexual immorality. So they invited the Israelites, and Israel just got harpooned for this over and over again, where they would say, okay, yeah, let's come and make your gods our gods, and that's great. And they would take these women as their wives and have multiple, and these sexual relationships that weren't appropriate. That's an easy connection to make with idolatry. But grumbling and complaining? How is that an example of idolatry? That's a little bit of a harder sell, Paul. I'm going to read an account. There's multiple of these, but the one I'm going to read is out of Numbers 21. I'm just going to read verse 5, Numbers 21, if you want to refer to this later. Here's what it says. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. So the Israelites are complaining. We're familiar with this. Why have you brought us here to die? We're hungry. We're thirsty. I want you to notice the contradiction in their own words. They said on the one hand, there's no food. Basically, we're starving. We have no food to eat. I need food. Please provide for us. We're going to die. But then, we loathe this worthless food. 
So it's not that they didn't have food. It's not that there wasn't food. It's that the food God gave them is not the food they wanted. They wanted something else. And there's the idolatry. They were grumbling because what they wanted is not what God gave them. Their desire and God's provision were opposed to one another. That's the idolatry. Now, there's nothing wrong with desiring food. Think back to this phrase in verse 6, that we might not desire evil. So evil desires in picture, well, desiring food is not evil. In fact, there's nothing wrong with desiring good food. I desire good food every day. I love it. It's not the desire for food itself that is evil. The evil comes when that desire becomes out of order. There's a term for this. It's called an inordinate desire. Inordinate desire. It's a desire that is out of place. If you can think about your heart as being a throne room, and there's this throne, the seat of your heart, and then there's these steps leading up to the throne. And on each step, there's a different desire. And whatever sits upon the throne of your heart, that is what has you captivated. So we know what should be at the throne of our heart. That's Christ. But then we have these other desires that are lesser desires. They're good. They're great desires to have, but they are not supreme. An inordinate desire is when a desire on a lower rung tries to take the place of something that should be higher. And what happens is this inordinate desire will slowly swap places in your heart and creep up and up and up and up and up and then slowly threaten to overtake the throne. What starts as a small desire slowly grows and grows and grows. It becomes out of order. It's inordinate. It's out of place. Sometimes an inordinate desire is a desire that's stronger than it should be. Sometimes it's a desire that's more important than it should be. It's, it's prioritized more than it should be. It was out of order when the Israelites put their desire above God's provision. God, we know what you gave us, but we don't want that. That's not what I want. So essentially, their idol was not a little carved image. It was self. Self is the idol. And this is really what idolatry is. We are made in God's image. Idolatry says, I want to make God in my image. This is what I think God should be like. And then we set it there. Only in America, we don't actually do this and set it there. We do the building in our minds. And sometimes we even call this imaginary God, God, or Jesus. We say, well, this is what Jesus is like. I think Jesus would, and put it in there. And we formulate an idea of what Jesus is like based less on this and more on this. Let me tell you what Scripture says about this. It's deceitfully wicked. Who can understand it? That's idolatry. And this is the evil of idolatry, that we have reversed 
God's imaging role. God has made us. God wants creation to look at us and say, oh, look, it's kind of like God. But instead, we reverse that and we say, huh, make this like me? Huh, yeah, that's like God. And we worship and serve that. So now maybe we can see Paul's point slowly starting to come to surface. He's been trying to convince the Corinthians to lay down their rights and freedoms for one another. And he exhorts them to do so intentionally in, the, in chapter 9, demonstrating self-control like a disciplined athlete. We see that in verses 24 through 27 of chapter 9. But the danger is that if we can't do so, we may be just like the Israelites in the wilderness, idolaters. Our freedoms and rights as Christians can become idols. I think that's the warning that Paul is giving here. That's why he refers to idolatry. That's why he gives the example here. He says, look at the warning signs for the Israelites. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They weren't really playing games. That's all I'll say about that with our little ears present. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. We must not grumble as some of them did. We must not do these things. These things revealed their evil desire and it revealed that they're idolaters. We must not do those things. And Paul uses this to make his point we must be willing to give up our freedoms and rights for the good of others and for the service of the gospel. <clears throat> the fear is that we might be like those who enjoy the blessings of God without truly belonging to God. And this is the American idol, pun intended on this, personal autonomy. This is our idol in America. This is the idol that slowly creeps up and threatens to take the seat of Christ in our hearts. Personal freedom is a good thing. But when it becomes inordinate, we use our freedom to indulge in anything that we want. And when that becomes the highest good in a society, collapse is soon to follow. We are incredibly naive or ignorant if we think that every other civilization can degrade into moral subjectivism and sexual immorality and be destroyed, but somehow we can get away with it because we're America. We cannot. It is an idol. None of us is as free as we think we are. If you think you are, sprout wings right now and fly out the door. You can't. We all have limitations. Now, in our country, we eschew limitations, if I even said that right. We hate it. You can't limit what I can do. I'm my own boss. But I'll tell you, we are not our own boss. That's what Israel did in the Old Testament. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. Where did that get them? Captivity. We must submit ourselves to Christ. When our personal autonomy trumps that, we have created an idol. 
for our personal autonomy to be properly seated in our hearts, we must subject it to Christ through submission to the Word of God. This book restricts my freedoms. And I'm telling you now, it's a beautiful thing. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to say, Jesus, you're my Lord. The Israelites' idolatry is what revealed their true identity for most of them. They claimed to be Israelites. They walked with Israelites. They experienced God's blessings with the Israelites. But their grumbling, complaining, and immorality revealed the true condition of their hearts, and they were overthrown. Likewise, many in the church, this is around the world. I talked to Raju about this this week. Many in the church who claim to be Christian, who walk with Christians, who eat food with Christians, who experience the blessings of belonging to a church with other Christians, many of them truly aren't Christians. They're idolaters. And just like the Israelites, their grumbling and complaining and immorality and unwillingness to sacrifice rights or freedoms or any other number of actions are potentially signs of idolatry. The danger is that just like with the Old Testament, we recognize that in other people more quickly than we recognize that within ourselves. I'll be the first to admit it. It is hard to notice our own idols because we know it's wrong, so we build a system of belief in our mind to convince ourselves that I haven't really supplanted Christ. I haven't really made that shift yet, when in actuality we have. Listen to this next verse very carefully. Verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. To stand is to belong to Christ, and to fall is to reject Christ. It is possible to think you're standing and fall. This should frighten us to our core. It's possible for me to think that I am standing and yet fall. And it's possible for me to do that all the while proclaiming I'm a Christian. The warning here, take heed. So then verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This temptation, just like every other temptation, is common across all men, across all time. There is nothing new under the sun. Our idolatry may take different shapes or forms, but idolatry is idolatry. Whether or not we focus it on little tiki men or drugs or sex or reputation or entertainment, musical style, sermonic preference, our country, marriage, relationships, money, health, any of these things can be the object of idolatry. It's still idolatry across the board. You may not even be able to see it. Sometimes you can see the little guy there. You're like, oh, idolatry. For most of it, you can't. And in the same way that that temptation is common to man, 
The ability to withstand the temptation is also common to man, but not by nature. It has been made common to man by our faithful God. Jesus Christ is the common solution to our common temptation because he is the antidote to our idolatry. It's whenever we submit to Christ as our supreme treasure that all of our other desires naturally fall into place. We avoid idolatry by submitting to Christ through his word. Now, God also provides, when we look at verse 13, he also provides other ways of escape for other more specific temptations. That's also true. But the point of all this is that the solution is not found in us. We can't will ourselves to work towards that. That's just idolatry. It has to come from God or else we receive the credit. And it's the exact same trap all over again. Today, we're going to do something a little bit differently. Instead of points of application, I want to give an extended time of reflection. The application is basic. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. It's just basic. Make Christ supreme in your life. That's, that's the application. Very basic. Not easy. Demonstrate Christ's supremacy by laying down your rights and freedoms for others. Renounce your idols. That's the application. The problem is that we often don't renounce our idols because we have not named our idols. Sometimes we just refuse to. We know they're there in the background, but we just ignore it. Sometimes we just can't see them. I praise God that I have a wife who is not afraid to tell me when she thinks that a desire in my life has become inordinate. And she does tell me that. If it wasn't for her, I wonder, would I see it? This morning, we're going to pray and ask God to reveal our idols to us, our inordinate desires. Just like the Israelites, our idols can often be detected by examining our thoughts and actions. So I would like to ask again, this is going to be different. I would like to ask everyone to enter into a time of prayer. You can just bow where you're at. And I'm going to read off some questions. And I want you to ask the Lord to help your heart work through these questions. And in just a moment, I'll call this back to attention. Here's the questions for us this morning. What are those things that cause me the most stress and anxiety? What are those things that I just don't want to live without? What are those things that cause me to grumble or complain the most? And most importantly, am I certain that Christ is truly my supreme treasure? I'm going to ask you to talk to the Lord and ask him to reveal to your heart what he has for you this morning.
I will pray for us. Lord God, I confess to you that my heart can be filled with pride. My heart can be resistant to change, resistant to critique. Even if I don't feel that to be true, Lord, your word tells me that it is so. We are prone to wander away from you and to abandon you in our hearts. And if it were not for the work of your son on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, if it were not for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, removing the veil from our eyes, we would not be able to see you clearly as we ought. And we would not be able to see ourselves as clearly as we ought to. But your word tells us that it is itself a double-edged sword. That it pierces down to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. That it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Lord, would you in this moment divinely strip away whatever feelings that may be stirring in our hearts so that our heart might receive directly from your word the piercing and the correction that it needs? Would you form us into a people who run from, flee from idolatry in all its shapes and sizes? Would you teach us to be a people who are not ruled by our appetites or our bellies, the lusts of our hearts, our evil desires? Teach us what it truly is to love you first, to love others second, and to love self last. Lord God, we thank you that you have sent Jesus Christ to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin, including our idolatry. We thank you that once we come to Christ, we never have to fear eternal punishment or judgment again. We ask that you would prevent this knowledge from making us flippant or lazy in our lives so that idolatry does not creep back in and take a place in us where we cannot see it. God, we are your people. You are our God and our King. We ask you to do this work in us this morning in the name of Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.